0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying his word together. We're glad you're here as we turn to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove families have been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. For most of my life, I've, uh, I've always struggled with the idea of the one. You guys know that like idea? I feel like it's often found in movies and themes, this like the one person that's for you, right? I've, I've never, it's never resonated in my heart. Actually, early on, Alicia and I used to have this conversation uh, when we were dating and married, and I used to say, well, I mean, I love you, but I think I could marry anyone. As long as I just follow God's word, it would work out. And She was like, cool thanks like super romantic it's like well yeah isn't like isn't that how it's supposed to be like is there some destiny that i have to find and line up and get all this like that's sometimes the pulse we feel so I've, I've always wrestled with that. And, but, but then I have these moments. Like Friday night, Alicia and I got to take a date. She took me out for Father's Day. We went downtown. We're like walking down the street. And I just like have that feeling in my soul of like there is no one else on the planet that like I would want to be in this moment that I'm meant to be with. Like this is the woman for me. Like I was just overwhelmed with love for her. And I'm like maybe, maybe she is the one. Like it's this like, like I constantly feel this like tension back and forth in my, my soul. Like, is, is life really some destiny that I have to discover, or is it like up to me to like work it all out and just follow God's words and principles, and then who, who knows what happens, right? I don't know if you've ever felt this tension. Maybe you didn't feel it over a person. Maybe you feel it over a job. Maybe you feel over an aspect of your life. Maybe, maybe you feel this tension in this moment of like, is there some destiny that I have to discover, or is life just like I do my thing and hope it works out. Like, wh- where's the balance there? I think the longer I've been married and the longer I've journeyed through life, I don't think that's an either-or. I think there's actually a tension that we're supposed to exist in, that there's an aspect to our life that's governed towards God's purposes and ends, but then there's also responsibility that we play in how we actually move towards that end or that reality. This morning, we're going to look at a story in Genesis chapter 4 that kind of calls us into that tension. The tension between the governing of God towards his purposes and the responsibility that we have in following God in our own life and the way that God kind of works in all those details of life. If I was to give you kind of a big idea that I want to kind of unpack from Genesis 24, it's this, that God is providentially working in the everyday things of life. God is providentially working in the everyday things of life. So Genesis chapter 24 is a story. uh, It actually comes at the very end of Abraham's life. And it begins with this. If you have your Bibles, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, now Abraham was old well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charged it all he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country, to my kindred, and take a wife for my son, Isaac." So the story of Genesis chapter 24 is going to be about how Abraham's son, Isaac, finds the one, right? The wife. But in many ways, it's actually a much larger story about the way God works in and through the lives of his people. So let me give you the kind of overarching story, and then we're going to work back through it, okay? So right before Genesis chapter 24 starts, we have a significant event in the life of Abraham. You remember Abraham? We kind of launched into him last week when God called Abraham to follow, to go from his country, and God made a promise to Abraham. He said, listen, if you go from your country, I'm going to show you a new land that I'm going to give to you. I'm going to form from you a people or a nation, and then I'm going to bless you so that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This was God's promise to Abraham, and last week we looked out the way Abraham kicked off that journey by really not trusting God, and there was this whole issue with his wife, and it was a whole mess at the start. But here, fast forward through Abraham's life several chapters, we're now at the end, and right before this story in Genesis chapter 4, Abraham's wife, Sarah, dies. Now this creates a problem, slightly, because God had promised Abraham that he was going to bring a nation from him. But his wife is dead, and his son is single. And so it's like, well, where's the nation? Like, what, what's happening here, God? Like, You gotta move some pieces parts if we're actually gonna see your promises brought to bear. So that's kind of the tension that you step into in Genesis chapter 24. How are the promises of God going to carry forth as Abraham's kind of winding down his life into the next generation? So Abraham, at the beginning, as you just read, he comes to a servant and he says, listen, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna send you back to my hometown, to my family, to find a wife for my son Isaac. Because the Canaanites are not God's people. Actually, if you read through Genesis, they're often found against God's purposes. And so he says, I don't want you to take a wife for him from them. I want you to go back and find a wife from my family. It's a pretty common ancient Near Eastern idea in that Time. It's foreign to us. There's a lot of things in this text that are a little bit foreign to our culture, but in that culture, it wouldn't have been entirely abnormal. And Abraham essentially says, go find a wife. The story of Genesis 24 is then the servant goes, seeks to find this person that God is going to have that he can bring back to marry Isaac. There's a whole bunch of details that happen that we're going to dig into, but the long and short of it is he finds a woman named Rebecca talks and engages with her family, and brings her back to marry Isaac. And then this is how the chapter ends, right? Verse 67. Then Isaac brought her, this is Rebecca, into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebecca, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So Rebecca is the answer to the problem that's introduced at the beginning of the story. The story though of Genesis 24 is, how does God work from fulfilling his promise to Abraham ultimately in bringing Rebekah to Isaac? And that story is a story of God's providence. God's providence. Now that's not a word that we talk about very often, but it's actually a really important word for you to understand. Providence is the idea that God directs the events of human history in order to bring about his purposes to fulfill his promises. I'll say that one more time. Providence is the work of God to govern human history, to accomplish his purposes, to, bring, to fulfill his promises, It's a massive theological issue, but one that we see time and time again throughout the scriptures. That God actually works in the everyday moments of our lives to accomplish what he has promised ultimately to accomplish in bringing redemption to his fallen creation. That's the story in Genesis chapter 24. Let me me help you unpack this in a little bit of a deeper way. Um, One of the great statements of understanding God's providence comes from a work called the Westminster Catechism of Faith. I want you to understand this because it's important for how we're going to see it work through Genesis chapter 24. The Westminster Catechism of Faith was written in Scotland during the Reformation. It was a group of pastors that got together to kind of formulate what are some of the central teachings of scripture that formulate Christian theology. And in there, they give one of the best, although Slightly convoluted because it was written in the 1500s or 1600s, ideas of providence. This is what they say in the Westminster Catechism. They say this God, this is providence, God, the creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Okay, some of you just checked out on me. Come back for a second. Let me break this down because this is why I want you to understand. What this is summarizing is this idea that God governs everything. From the greatest to the least. There is not one thing that happens that God is not in control of of in our lives and in our world. How does God do this? Because, this is what it says, because God is above all those things. In his insurmountable foreknowledge, in his holiness, in his own counsel of his will. Because God is God and we are not. God governs all things. What does he govern them towards? The praise of his own glory. That, that's what scripture points to time and time again. That God governs the world out of the counsel of his own will, out of his wisdom, to the praise of his glory. That's the idea of providence. That's where I go back to the simpler, my simpler definition is, right, God governs all things to accomplish his purposes, to fulfill his promises. Genesis chapter 24, then, we see the story of how God's big providence works out in the everyday moments of our lives. And the question that I want us to consider today is this. How can we live to align ourselves with God's providence? Now, in one sense, God's providence is God's providence. It happens, we saw that last week. Remember, Abraham acts completely unfaithful to to God. He doesn't trust God in his promises, he goes down, he puts his family at massive risk, essentially puts his wife at risk with Pharaoh, traffics her out of his fear, And doesn't trust, and yet God intervenes for the sake of his promises out of Abraham's unfaithfulness and still accomplishes his purposes. Genesis 24, which now comes at the end, is the flip side of that story. Here, you actually have people acting in faithfulness towards God, and we see God's providence work in that way as well. The good news of God's providence is that God will accomplish his purposes whether we're faithless or faithful. The difference is how we experience God's providence in our lives so that we can receive part of what God wants to do now, ultimately to bring about what God will do one day. Genesis 24 is a nice reprieve. I don't know about you. I've loved studying through Genesis and thinking through family, but it's been like heavy. Like I'm like fear, shame, like all this stuff. I'm like Genesis 24 is just like the nice happy story in the middle that you're like great love, great, great love story, good. But in it, there's some really important things that help us see how you and I can align ourselves with God's providential work in our lives and in our world. And the way I want to do that this morning is to look at three characters in the story that engage God in different ways, and yet, through them, God works in some pretty cool providential ways. The first one we encounter in the story is Abraham. You already heard Abraham kind of give the call to his servant. But look with me at verse 5 and kind of see the why Abraham is so adamant about going back and really getting a wife for his son from his hometown. So the servant says to him in verse 5, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord the God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Abraham operates out of the trust in God's promise. He's really concerned with his son not going back ultimately to his hometown. Why? Because Abraham knew that God had called him To this new land. And what Abraham knew was, if my son goes back to the original land, he's not going to step fully into the promises that God has made for our family. And so he tells his servant, listen, go find a wife. If she doesn't want to come, that's fine. Just don't take my son back there because God has given us this land. What Abraham teaches us at the very beginning of this story is part of the way that we align with God's providential work is by trusting his promises. We've actually seen a major growth in Abraham from the beginning of the story to the end. As I said before, when we saw last week, Abraham does not begin the story in the greatest place of trust. But here, now as his life's drawing to a close, he's grown to the place where he is trusting in God. And when the time comes for him to make a decision of how he's going to pass on the legacy of his life to his son and to see God's purposes accomplished in his life, the place Abraham goes to direct or dictate how he's going to accomplish that is back to the promises of God. Now, if you read through Genesis 12 through 24, you see that Abraham goes through lots of ups and downs. But the most significant moment is in Genesis 15, or Genesis, um, never mind, I can't think of it. My brain just went blank. It happens, sorry, and I'm not going to look it up. But where uh, Abraham offers... Isaac as a sacrifice, where God calls Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And he ultimately is willing to do that, but God intervenes to show that he's a God of providence, that he doesn't demand that, but he actually will provide a sacrifice for Abraham. And at that moment, Abraham's life changes, and we see his faith begin to grow to the point where now here at the end, as he's ready to end, he operates from a place of trust. That place of growth from where we go from untrusting to deeply trusting God and his promises and what he does, that's the work of what we call sanctification. It's the work of growing in deeper and deeper faith. Most of us do not start when we come to Christ in a place of great faith. Many of us, we come limping, clinging to Jesus for any hope because we're like, I know I'm a mess. I need something beyond myself to rescue, you and save, to rescue me and save me from the life I've in, I'm in. Right? And we hear the call of Jesus and we put our faith in him. But you and I know we then live in a place of struggle, much like Abraham, with tension. Sometimes things are good and we're following Jesus and we're all in. And sometimes we're not. Sometimes we're struggling and we're trying to just figure things out. And sometimes we put ourselves at massive risk because we're not even trusting God. And yet God works in those moments and he grows us and he moves us and we grow and learn and move. And the good news of Abraham's life is we can continue to grow to a place where we actually trust God. And here, Abraham trusts the Lord. He trusts that God will provide. He's going to bring what he promised to bring. and He's going to show the, the woman who will ultimately be the wife for my son that will carry on the promises. It's good news and a good reminder to us that part of our growth is learning to trust God more deeply, and we can get to that point in our lives. And that's Abraham. I think even a good question for us as we consider on a day like Father's Day is, do we operate when we think about the legacy that we will leave out of trust in God's promises or not? Abraham does. And he aligns himself with God's purposes. And it's where the story begins. And for us to align ourselves with God's providence, it begins in that simple place of trusting in his promises and following that. So the servant then receives Abraham's words, and he becomes kind of the second main character in the story. Abraham gets left behind, and the servant begins to travel back to Abraham's hometown to look for this wife who will continue on God's covenant purposes and promises through Abraham's family. And so the servant comes to a well in the middle of the town. You can see this. It begins in verse 10, and he doesn't really know what to do, right? All he knows is, like, I got to go back and find this, a wife for my master's kid, but like, who is this woman, and who are these people? Abraham's been living away from his family for a number of years. So he comes back to the town, he comes to a well, and look what he does next. Look at verse 11. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of the water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, Oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Now that word steadfast love in the Hebrew is the word chesed. It's the idea of covenantal or committed love. So the idea is, God, you've made a covenant with Abraham. Show yourself true to that covenant by providing in this instance, right? That's his prayer. So he says, behold, verse 13, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So the servant comes, he doesn't know what to do, he's seeking God's guidance, and so he essentially says, hey God, would you work in this way? Now his request is pretty unspectacular when you really think about it. Like, okay, there's already women coming out to draw water, may the person I ask give me water, may she feed my camels. Like, cool, I think I'd ask God to like do something a little more spectacular than just like have somebody feed me some water. But what he's actually asking for is show me a woman of character. Show me a woman who will display the sort of character and commitment to actually care for me and care for my camels. Now, caring for camels in those days and feeding them from a well, that was significant work, right? This isn't like you haul one bucket, you pour water. Camels can drink up to 25 gallons of water after a long journey. So this is probably taking her a good hour and a half of hauling water and feeding her camels. So this is a pretty significant act that he's actually asking for of hospitality that she would show to him. And his whole point was, God, if you show me a woman who has that sort of character, I'll know that you're providing for your covenant. Look what happens next in the story then. Verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And then essentially, the next several verses, she does exactly what he prayed for. And God provides. God shows himself faithful to direct him out of his prayer to provide this woman. He responds by lavishing her in jewelry, signifying the intentions of ultimately marriage. But look how he responds then to her act of hospitality towards him in verse 26. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love, his chesed, and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. You see, what we learn in the servant's story is that when we're to align ourselves with God's providence, we must seek God's provision. We must seek God's provision. He comes into a place where he's unsure about what direction to take, looking and seeking to say, God, will you be faithful? Will you show up? Will you actually do what you promised to do? And his natural bent in that moment is to ask the Lord to intervene to help guide his steps in where he should go. I mean, the guy could have shown up, gotten a list of all the young women who are of marriageable age in the town. He could have been like, all right, where's Abraham's family? Let's GPS this thing. She must be in this quadrant. I'll show up over here. Maybe I can work through all the details and I can figure out what the plan is. But he doesn't. He comes. He recognizes if God doesn't intervene, I have no idea where this thing's going to end up. And he seeks then for God's intervention. See, to understand that God is providential that God governs and controls, allows us in the moments of unsurety to seek him for his plan, to come and say, God, would you direct my steps? Would you give guidance? Would you provide wisdom? Would you help? Because I don't know what to do. And here's the truth that I think we're reminded of this story. God loves to provide for his people. God likes to show off his faithfulness. He does. Oftentimes, we're in places of greatest dependence. God loves to show up to help us see that it's only him who can provide what we ultimately need. And how does the servant respond when that takes place in his life? He worships. He praises God. God, you are faithful. One of the great ways that God shows off through our lives is when he faithfully provides for us when we're in places and times of need. It doesn't always look exactly how we want it to, but God is a provider. And what also happens when we seek God's provision as we begin to see his providential working in our lives, it also gives us testimony. So the story continues. The servant goes back to Rebecca's household, to her brother and her father, and he begins to tell them the story. Listen, my master sent me to find a wife. I came here. I didn't know what to do. I went to the well. I asked God for this specific answer. God gave me this specific answer, and he showed his faithfulness to me. And he recounts this whole testimony of the way in which God provides. And then he says this in verse 49, to, as he, after he recounts this whole story. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I might turn to the right hand or to the left. So look at how her father and brother respond. The thing that has come from the Lord, we cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go." Let her be the wife of your master's son. Look what her last phrase is as the Lord has spoken. You see, her family recognized that even God was providentially working in the moment. His testimony to God's provision gives them the opportunity to see the way in which God providentially works in the world. And what's amazing in the story is it really is not that spectacular. It isn't some miracle. God didn't like rain down a light from the heavens that like glowed over Rebecca's head like, oh, the one, right? Like he went to a well. He asked for God's guidance. God provided. He showed him the path. He recounts that testimony. And in it, we see a moment where even her family recognizes, wow, your God is one that provides. He is the one that guides and governs. He leads creation towards his purposes. When we seek the provision of God, and we see God provide, it gives us testimony that allows others to recognize the greatness of the providence of our God. And I think this is the this is the joy of God's providence is that it doesn't always have to be so spectacular sometimes it ends in pretty spectacular things, but oftentimes it comes in the little obedience, the little seeking, the little moments where we're unsure in life or where we're just open to God maybe working in ways that he works. I heard a story that, uh, that reminded me of this. Um, it's uh, it's uh, about uh, a teacher uh, at Eastern University named Tony Campolo, who's a prominent author and speaker and writer. And um, the story goes that one day, uh, Tony Campolo was asked to speak at a... Uh, a college chapel. And so he went to the college chapel, but before the chapel was to begin, there were several guys that wanted to pray over over Tony. And so they gathered kind of in the back room, and these guys began to lay hands on Tony and pray over him. And it kind of kept dragging on after a while. Tony recounts it kind of got irritable for him. These guys' hands were on their head. It just got heavy. He was uncomfortable. They're like praying for him. And then at one point in the middle of this, while they're praying for him, one of the guys seems to start praying for something totally random the guy starts praying for this guy he knew named Charlie Stolfus and Tony recounts that the man started to pray dear Lord you know Charlie Stolfus he lives in that silver trailer down the road a mile you know the trailer Lord just down the road on the right hand and Tony said that he once informed the guy like you don't have to give God all the details he knows like he's he's got it right but he says Lord Charlie told me this morning he's going to leave his wife and three kids would you step in and do something God bring that family back together and Tony recounts, like, he's like, what is going on? Like, why are we praying about this? And he's kind of just in this moment, kind of, yeah, what, what's going on? So anyway, the prayer meeting ends. He goes out. He preaches the chapel, He preaches at the chapel, does his thing, gets in his car, leaves, starts driving back home. While he gets on the highway, this is several decades ago, there's a hitchhiker on the side of the road. And he notices the guy, and he decides to be gracious, and so he pulls over to the side of the road. And the guy on the side of the road, he says, hey, what's your name? He says, my name is Charlie Stolfus. And Tony Campolo says, "Okay, get in the car, I'll give you a ride." So the guy hops in the car, and Tony starts to head off the highway and then he gets off at the next exit and turns around and starts heading back the other way. And the guy's like, "What are you what are you doing? I don't want to go this way." And Tony Campolo goes to the guy and says, "Well, I'm taking you home." And he says, "What? Why are you taking me home?" He's like, "Because you're about to leave your wife and three kids and God doesn't want you to do that." And he says, at this point in the story, Charlie Stolfi starts freaking out, right? Like he's like leaned against the car like, "What is happening?" And he's like, well, how are you even going to take me home? He's like, oh, it's simple. I'm going to take you to the silver trailer. that's about a half mile down the road on the right-hand side, right? And he says, at this point, the guy is, like, losing his mind. But he gets back to the trailer. The guy gets out of the car, tells his wife the story. Tony Campolo goes in and leads both of them to the Lord, which is a pretty spectacular ending, if I do if I say so, right? Right? But what I'm struck by in that story, in the same way I'm struck by the story of Rebecca, was that like a lot of the things leading up to it were totally unspectacular. Like a prayer meeting where you're slightly annoyed. You you stop for a hitchhiker because you feel bad. And yet in all of this, God is working to intervene in someone's life. You see, oftentimes the way God's providence works is it just aligns when we're submitted to the small details of life when we're just willing to be open to how God might work through us, maybe it doesn't seem spectacular in the moment, but a lot of times it can lead up to spectacular things that God wants to do. Now, that doesn't mean every hitchhiker ends up coming to Jesus that you pick up on the side of the road, but what it does remind us of is the fact that that's the way God often works. That God's providence governs not just the big moments of our lives, but the small moments of our lives. And when we're willing to seek him for his guidance in those moments, we get to see God work in our lives in incredible ways. I hope all of us have testimonies over the course of our life where we look back and say, man, I didn't even know what God was doing in that situation, but I just kind of tried to step out and see what would happen. And God used that to do this in someone's life. Or God used this to bring about this purpose that I never thought would be the case. So if we're going to align with God's providential work, we've got to trust him and we've got to seek him. And then the last thing and the last character that we see in the story is we've got to obey him. We've got to obey his plan as it comes to us. Look what happens. So he kind of asked this question, hey, are you going to allow me, right? In, in their culture, arranged marriages were common. Again, foreign in our culture, but it's a very common practice in the Middle East thousands of years ago. So he essentially says, are you going to allow me to take her home so she can marry my, uh, my Isaac or not? Right? And they essentially say, yeah, we trust God. Okay, that'll happen. Now, look what happens next, though. When they, they, He stays the night. The next morning, verse 54, they arose in the morning and he said, send me away to my master. So he's like, all right, I'm ready to go. God's provided, I'm founded, it's time to move forward to see this plan brought to, to fruition. Her, mother, her brother and mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days, after that she may go. So they get skittish. I don't, I don't know why, but they do. I mean, maybe because this guy just showed up and within 24 hours he's trying to take his, their daughter all the way back to marry someone. I get it, I'd probably be skittish too myself, right? I can't really judge them. But they get skittish. Look what he says. don't delay me. If the Lord has prospered, if he's in it, my way, send me that I can go to my master. And they said, fine, then let us call the young woman. We'll ask her. We'll we'll ask her to make the decision. Does she want to go in this way or not? And what does she say? Verse 58, I will go. Now, that's a pretty significant statement for a young woman who spent the bulk of her life with her family to say in light of the idea that she's going to be moved across the country, essentially, (laughs) to a different family, to marry someone she's never met, to trust that somehow God is working in this situation to bring her to that point and that he's moved. So I think this is a huge statement of faith by Rebecca. I think we should all marvel that she would have that sort of faith to see the providence of God work in her life in such a way that she would then say, okay, I'll obey. I'll go. I'll follow where God might be leading me. I don't understand all of it. I don't know all the details. And essentially what happens is she travels back, sees Isaac in the field. They're united, and then they're married. That's how the story ends. They're brought together. And she carries forth now the promise and will be part of the way God will bring about his promise into the world out of her obedience. You see, when we come to a place of really trusting in the providence of God, when we seek him and see his providing in our life, when we see the way he moves and orchestrates our the events and governs us and leads us and guides us, then the simple response that it leads us to is obedience. It leads us to the place where we say, "Okay, God, I'll trust you and I'll follow." Providence allows us to obey. It allows us to follow God and to see him then provide in our lives. Yeah, oftentimes it's scary, and oftentimes it takes great acts of faith. But trust will result in obedience. And all of us, if we follow and want to align ourselves with the providence of God in our life, will be forced to ask the question, will I obey or will I not? Will I go or will I hold on to what I hold central? I was reminded of this story of Rebecca, of my, a little bit of my own story, and I, I wanted to share this, not to prop myself up, but just maybe as a testimony to say, I, I've, I've seen this journey in my own life, maybe you have as well, that if we're really to see the providence of God, we will be brought to places that challenge our obedience. I was um, with some friends this past weekend. Um, We got to have lunch with them on uh, Friday down in Ann Arbor. I promised myself I wouldn't make any Ann Arbor jokes in this service. So um, we're just going to keep moving on. So, um, but we got to have lunch with them. And so for for you that, some of you that that might be new um, to to our congregation, before I came here to Woodside Farmington Hills, I was a pastor uh, back in Akron, Ohio for about 11 years. Years and help pastor at a, a, a church there, and so these were friends that we had known from back in, in my hometown. That's kind of my, so we were having lunch and they were asking me, "How's it going? We haven't seen them in a while. How's the church going?" And I was I was recounting to them like, "Man, I love it. Like I I'm so happy. I just love where God has us. I love our church. I love our church family. I love what God's doing. Like I was just really joyful to share with them just all the ways I've seen God provide and work in our family and our church over the last couple years, and it was like really encouraging." But as I was recounting all of that, I was looking back and just reminded of the challenge of what it means to walk in God's providence. Because two and a half years ago, in March of 2019, I was pastoring in Akron, Ohio, and I started to feel God kind of shake the ground a little bit underneath me through a whole bunch of things. And it started to caused me to question whether or not this was where God really had for me. And God really opened up myself and my heart and my wife to say, I I think God's actually leading us out of this place into something new. And that I was really supposed to hand the church I was pastoring off off to to someone someone else. And there's a lot of details here, so I'm not going to get all into that, those weeds. But long story short, in June of 2019, I made the decision to resign my position as the pastor of that church. It was at a similar multi-site church like Woodside. Um, and I didn't know what was next. I had no idea. Well, kind of like the servant, I was like kind of in this place of, God, I feel like you're leading me out, but I have no idea where you're going. So you've got to show up and kind of show me where you want me to be. And um, so we, we announced to the church... And uh, the next day, I got a call on my phone and a voicemail that said, hey, um, my name is Steve Zerilli. I'm the executive pastor of Campusing at Woodside Bible Church, and I got your name from my mom, and I want to have a conversation about some opportunities we have up here. And I'm like, what on earth? First of all, I mean, I'll be honest with you guys, since we're friends, like, I had no desire I was like, I just did the campus passering thing. I'm not looking for that. Michigan, I don't know. Like, I'm kidding. I love you guys. I just, I just like the jokes. I just like the jokes. That's all, okay? But I was like, I, like, I, I don't know. But when you don't have a job, you don't say no, right? That's not, the, that's not the MO. So I'm like, all right, I'll have a conversation. I never heard of Woodside. I don't know Farmington Hills at all. And we started to engage in a conversation. And I would say every time I had a conversation at Woodside, I left more intrigue than I began it. And it was like kind of this, okay, is this, I don't know, I don't know. But I love, now listen, I love my hometown. I love, I'm an Akron boy. That's where my family's originally from. I had that. We loved it. We had done significant ministry there. And, you know, but God continued to kind of guide. And we continued to have conversations. And it was kind of this moment. And then I'll never forget, in um, September of 2019, I came here. I preached to you guys for the first time. And I went back to Akron. And that week... I'm, I'm trying to be, I don't want to be, I just wanted you to, to feel the tension for a moment, so please hear me. That week, I got an award for work that I had done in the city of Akron in ministry. So I was like, I'm not leaving Akron. Like, literally, the name of the organization was called Love Akron. That was like the whole thing. So I was like, what, what on earth, right? But I was like, I don't know what God's doing. And I'm seeking, and I'm like, okay. And so Alicia and I are talking, we're praying. Finally, I'm like, I got to go out. I just got to spend some time with the Lord. I went to the spot I normally prayed with on this hill over that kind of was in a park I loved. And I just, God, what do you want to do? What, like, what do you want? Like, and I'll never forget, God very clearly said, Will you give up the place you love for the king you love? And there's, there's the question Will you obey me? Will you trust me enough to follow? And will you go where I'm sending you? Now listen, I'm not saying that story to boast about myself. There was agony in that season. There was moments where I struggled deeply, right? And and even then, struggled in the transition out. So please do not hear me share that story as some way to like, look at me, I'm awesome example of faith. Jesus is the only awesome example of faith. I'm just saying if you're going to follow God's provision and his providence, at some point you'll be challenged in your obedience. And sometimes that might be giving up what you love in order to follow where he might be needing to lead you to go. The question is, will you be ready in that moment? And here's the, here's the testimony of the story. In March of 2008, sorry, April of 2000, no, May. I'll get it right, one of these. <laughs> trying, to, trying to dictate on my day. In May of 2019, I quit my job and I never missed a paycheck because the Lord provided, because he's faithful. He's faithful. That's not a testimony about me. That's a testimony about how great our God is. Genesis chapter 24 isn't a testimony about how great Abraham is. It's not a testimony about how faithful the servant is. It's not even ultimately a testimony about the obedience of Rebecca. It's a testimony to say our God is faithful in his providence. He will govern our lives. He will do what's necessary to bring about his purposes in our lives to fulfill his promises so that he can ultimately glorify himself and we can receive the blessing of that. That's the truth of the story. And that's what... I. I want to remind you of today that God's providence means he can be trusted. It means he can be sought and it means you can walk in obedience to him knowing that he will use those things to bring about the best and good in your life. You say, how do I know? Right? Maybe some of you in this room this morning, or you're watching me online. You're in that place of seeking God for something in your life. Maybe it's not as big as a job. Maybe it is. Maybe it's something smaller. Maybe there's been agony. Maybe you're like, how can I actually trust that God's going to use this circumstance somehow providentially in a way to bring about good in my life and to ultimately glorify himself? And here's what I want you to look at at the end of the day, because I think it's what Genesis 24 ultimately will point us forward towards. Don't look at me. Don't look at someone else. Look at Jesus. If God would give you Jesus, then he'll accomplish what he wants to accomplish in your life. He'll provide for you in whatever circumstance you're struggling through to trust I mean, we looked at it last week when we reminded ourselves of God's faithfulness and Abraham's unfaithfulness. Remind yourself of God's faithfulness even when Abraham acts in a faithful way. Romans 8 reminds us of this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's ultimate good, right? Doesn't mean things are always easy. Ultimate good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 wants to remind you God works all things together for good from the very beginning. If he predestined you and called you and brought you into his family, I always love someone said predestination is God's love language in the Bible. If he brought you into God's family, he will be faithful to do the work to bring you to the end where you experience the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. He will providentially govern your life to his purposes and his ends. But how can you trust that that will ultimately work good? That that whole chain will come to be? Where does Paul locate your focus to trust in God's providential working across your life? Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God would sacrifice his son so that you could be saved and brought into his family, do you think he will not govern the small challenges of your life towards his greater purposes? If he was willing to give up that, the eternal love and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that Jesus would come to this earth, take on human form, be among sinful men, and ultimately die at the hands of sinful men for your sin, how do you think God isn't going to be willing to do what's necessary to bring about ultimate good in your life? You see, we can trust the providence of God because he's already shown us how the end will come in the work of Jesus Christ. He's paid for our sin. He's conquered sin and death. He's already shown us the new creation is breaking in right now. And one day Jesus is gonna return to reset this whole place back to God's intended purposes. And if that's already been shown to us, then we can trust in the small things. You can trust in the moments where you're like, God, I don't understand this. I'm standing at this well, and I'm not really sure what the next step is, but I'm just gonna seek. And as you lead, I'm gonna obey. And when you do that, you get to see God work in incredible ways in your life. My hope, my prayer, is that at the end of your life, you'll be able to look back at testimonies like this servant, and you'll be to say, I had no idea what I was doing in that situation, but I sought the Lord, and you know what? He showed up because he's faithful, because that's the sort of God that he is. I pray that we all could be a testimony to the greatness and goodness of our God. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful this morning, I am thankful this morning, that you are a God of providence. I'm thankful that you are mighty and majestic, that you are above all things, that your ways are higher than our ways, and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And that out of your character as holy God, wise, all-knowing, infinite in power, you govern the reality of the world and the reality of our lives in such a way that in Christ our ultimate good can be brought about and you can be glorified. And so I pray out of that reality, Lord, that you would continue to birth in us a deeper and deeper trust. Grow us like Abraham to end our life trusting you more than we do right now. Help us like this servant, to seek you in the questions of life where we need your guidance and direction. And help us like Rebecca to ultimately act out of obedience so that we can bear testimony to your faithfulness, so that we can show off how awesome and great our God is. Help us to do those things, God, because we don't want it to point to us. We want to point to how awesome you are. We want people to see Jesus and his faithfulness to his people and to worship him. And so I pray, even right now, as we prepare to just celebrate your goodness and greatness to us, that you would cause our eyes to lift off ourselves and focus on you, to see you again in your providential greatness. And out of that, to celebrate that you are a good God, a good Father to us. And that from that place, it would elevate trust and faith in our souls. Would you work now towards that end, even as we sing, I pray in Jesus' name.